Good morning, church family. It is a beautiful day. I don't know who has been praying intensely for the weather to be this nice, but please keep it up. This is fantastic. What a blessing it is to be at camp meeting. We have been studying, uh, learning lessons from the book of Acts, hopefully learning those first generation lessons for last generation believers as we look not only for history and information, but we want to be transformed to be God's people in these last days. In our first message together, we talked about how people can be convinced of the truth, can even feel the conviction of the truth, but unless they yield, they won't be converted to the truth. Acts chapter 2, the Christian believers heard the word of God, received it, and repented, and thus 3,000 were added to them that day. Of course, we know the opposite happened in Acts chapter 7. They heard They were convicted, but they didn't yield. They stopped their ears and they rejected the truth, right? So that's a big difference, and we want to be those converted believers. The next morning, we looked at the idea that once you had that conversion experience, it doesn't stop there. The early Christians continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship and breaking the bread together in prayers. It was a beautiful commitment that they had to ongoing study, ongoing growth and development in their life in Christ. And we need the same thing. We need to undergo the discipline of the Christian life to become more like Jesus. And that goes on until Jesus comes. Yesterday morning, we looked at the spirit of Christ that immediately begins to exude from the genuinely converted. And that is a spirit of disinterested benevolence. You want to do good for others. It just comes out of you by the grace of God. When you're a new man, a new woman in Christ, you become more Christ-like and you start caring for others. We saw that as an important aspect. And though we have large institutional things like Adra, like Loma Linda, like all these wonderful things we have, that does not mean that we don't have a work to do for others individually in our own lives, in our local church context. We wanted to keep a focus on that and not lose that first love, but increase it more and more as we see the day approaching. Now, we're going to begin our study in Acts chapter 8 in a message entitled Antioch. We're going to look at what is the people's church and see if we can find how the growth of the early Christian church, one of the factors that made it go so speedily, and maybe there's some important lessons we can learn for our church growth, this day. But before we do any study of God's word, of course, we need to begin with a word of prayer. So if you would, please bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you that every one of us here is alive for it. And Lord, we want to learn at your feet from your word this morning. Please set us on a proper course. Give us insight. Give us wisdom that we need not only for daily living, but for also the pursuit of the mission you've given us. Help us to be your people. Help us not only to have the three angels' messages, but make us each three angels' messengers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go to the book of Acts chapter 8 this morning. Of course, logically, Acts chapter 8 follows Acts chapter 7. And if you recall, in Acts chapter 7, that's where Stephen made his defense of the Christian faith, became the first Christian martyr. And Acts chapter 8 dovetails with that as it begins in verse 1. After it says, now Saul was consenting to his death, that is the death of Stephen. Then it says, at that time, a great, what's the word there? Persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. 
Now I'll pause right here, and we're going to see this in a few minutes, but when we say the church which was at Jerusalem, that's pretty much the only place where the church was at that point. You remember Jesus had said in Acts chapter 1, in verse 8, that the message, the gospel, had spread first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to all the ends of the earth. But up until this point, Jerusalem is as far as they've gotten in that game plan. And now a great persecution arises against that church, which is pretty much the only church. At that time, it says, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they, and this is going to be important to figure out who they are, they were all, what's the word? Scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So now we see the transition from what Jesus had said, from Jerusalem first, now we're headed out to Judea and Samaria. And what was the impetus, what was the force that got them going to Judea and Samaria? Persecution. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now look at this very important three words. Except the whom? The apostles. So in all this scattering, this great diaspora, this great sending out of people or fleeing of people, the only ones who stayed behind were whom? The apostles. The leaders of the church stayed by the headquarters and they stuck by, but the rest of the believers, those would be the lay members of the church, were scattered out beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Now that's an important thing. Now, if you skip down to verse 4, you follow their course and activity. It says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, I want to make this clear. The Bible is explicit. It goes out of its way to say the people preaching the word were not the apostles. Now, that's to say the apostles didn't preach the word where they were, and hadn't raised up a great movement and had been faithful to God and his call on their life. But these were the local lay believers who were sent out from persecution, but they didn't go everywhere waiting for the apostles to catch up. They went everywhere, according to Scripture, preaching the Word. Fascinating. Now, let's follow their course a little farther. Go to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Starting with verse 19, the saga of the scattered continues. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now this is an important caveat, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So they were from Jerusalem, they were Jews, converted Jews, believing Jews, but still ethnically, culturally Jewish, and when they go to these new places, they're looking for other Jews to whom they can preach. But then you look at the next verse. But, verse 20, some of them, these are still they, them, the lay people, some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. Ooh. The plot thickens. And it says in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So now not only the gospel going beyond Jerusalem, it's going on 
beyond Judaism to Gentiles. And word gets back to Jerusalem. What's going on out there with all those lay people? I'm not making this up. Look at verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in where? Who was left in Jerusalem? The apostles. (laughs) And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. We need to see what's going on out there. Let's send a field secretary. And when he came, when when he came and had seen the grace of God, isn't that fascinating? You can see the grace of God as it works in the lives of newly converted people. He realizes this thing is real. This is genuine conversion we're seeing here. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was what? Glad. And encouraged them. Please note, it did not say, and he took over for them. He encouraged what they were doing. That encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. So they send out an emissary from Jerusalem just to make sure it's on the up and up, make sure they're not watering down, rounding off the edges, cutting any corners, and Barnabas goes out there and says, hey, they're doing a good work. This is genuine conversion. These are real disciples they're making. You just keep it up. In fact, he goes on. And he describes why he thought these things, verse 24, for he was a good man. full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek whom? Saul. Now, we don't have time to go into the saga of Saul, but after his conversion, he hung around for a little while and ended up going back to Tarsus. And Barnabas looks at this situation in Antioch and he says, you know who we need here? Let's bring in Saul. Let's call him off the bench. Put him to work out here among these Gentiles. Bunch of the church workers out here. And notice what happens. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. This is going to be a central theme of this message, but notice they didn't simply preach to the people. What did they do? They taught the people. For a year, Barnabas and Saul basically had a training for these people there in Antioch. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That point was driven home so well the other day that this was the first place they said, these people are just like Jesus everywhere. Amen. Now, let's continue the story just a little bit further. Paul and Barnabas stay in Antioch for one year, teaching the people. Then, if you were to follow the story even more, you can see in verses 27 through 30 that there was a great crisis, and Paul and Barnabas needed to go back to Jerusalem for a quick mission of uh, of rescue and deliverance, and then they returned to Antioch. Okay, Now, what's fascinating to me is, let's go to chapter 13. Well, the very end of chapter 12, verse 25, look. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So they had to make a quick trip after that year in 
Antioch, back to Jerusalem, and they returned to Antioch. And chapter 13 says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And it lists them off. And then it says in verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. How long have they been in Antioch? One year. And then they return, ready to keep preaching and teaching, and the Holy Spirit specifically says, now it's time for them to do something else. Separate them to me for the work that I have called them. Then, verse 3 says, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, I love this phrase, they sent them away. The local leadership there in Antioch said, the Holy Spirit has called you to work, now go away. Go do it. It does not say they allowed him to go with great tears. They saw them leaving him off in the day. It didn't say that. They said, clearly you've been called. Let's pray about it. Let's lay hands on you. Bye-bye. Who's going to take care of Antioch? The apostles are from Jerusalem. Barnabas and Saul are taken off on a mission. Who's left? Hmm. Every time you preach an evangelistic campaign and you speak about the truth, the biblical truth about the state of the dead, that it's unconscious sleep, that dead, truly, dead people are literally dead, you have to deal with a problem passage. Every time. Luke chapter 23 and verse 43. Let's go there very quickly. And you're going to say, what in the world does this have to do with Antioch? We're getting there. I promise. Luke chapter 23 and verse 33. You know this text very well. This is Jesus' brief conversation with the thief on the cross who with repentance in his heart looked to Christ and asked for redemption in that last moment and waning life. And it says in verse 43, and Jesus said to him, and I'm going to read it as the punctuation demands. And you're all going to tell me that what I'm reading is wrong. It says here, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Every word of that passage is right, but the reading is still wrong. Why? Because the comma changes the sense of the understanding, changes the meaning, right? Now, where do we as Seventh-day Adventists have the audacity to say that that text has been rendered incorrectly. Well, what you do when a text can be read one of two ways, you look at other texts, you look at the context. It's kind of like the fence post principle when one could lean one way or the other. You look at all the other ones, you make sure it lines up, right? First of all, you know, did Jesus go to paradise that day? No. When he resurrected, he said, don't cling to me, I have yet to send to my Father, right? We know this. We also know what everything else the Bible says about the state of the dead. The dead know not anything, and they don't praise the Lord. They're not doing it. Neither, they have nothing to do with anything under the sun, and we know these texts, right? So when we look at this, we say the wording is exactly right. The thing that's incorrect is the punctuation. So if you shift that little problem comma, just one word over, right? Then it reads, and Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The assurance came today, the reality will come later. Are we all on the same page? We are familiar with that passage. And that's a big difference. That punctuation makes a difference. It's the difference between 
It's time to eat, Grandpa. <laughs> and it's time to eat, Grandpa. <laughs> Same words, but that punctuation really makes a difference. Now let me show you another example of a problem punctuation. Let's go now to the right, to the book of Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, right in that little sandwich of books there. Ephesians, we're going to chapter 4. And the Apostle Paul, you recall, who was Saul from Tarsus, who was there at Antioch, speaks here about spiritual gifts and responsibilities and leadership positions in the church that the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, had established for the fulfilling of the Great Commission. And it says here in chapter 4 and verse 11, and he himself, that is Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Clearly, is everyone called to be an apostle or a teacher or an evangelist? No. Some are. Now, what is the job description? What is the what is the responsibility of those called individuals with those specific positions of responsibility? Well, the next text tells us. Now, if you have a King James Version of your Bible this morning, and this is not a seminar on Bible translations, please don't run off the rails with this. But I want to demonstrate that punctuation makes a very big difference in our understanding of the text. Okay? So he lists off all these spiritual positions and responsibilities that the Lord had established in his church, and the King James Version says in verse 12, what was the purpose of those positions? King James says, for the perfecting of the saints, comma. That's one job. Next, for the work of the ministry, comma. That's two jobs. And finally, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So apparently, these pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles, all of these mentioned positions have the responsibility to do three things. Perfect the saints, do the work of ministry, and edify the church. If you have a New King James Version of the Bible, it reads a little differently, even though the wording is basically identical. What's the difference is the punctuation. New King James, from which I've been preaching here, says in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Do you see a difference? One, you're supposed to do all the work. The other, you're supposed to train all the workers to do the work of ministry and then build up the body of Christ. Personally, as I read through the context, I think that one of the best renderings of this particular verse comes from the New International Version. Yes. But listen carefully. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. We've gone from three jobs to two jobs. Now we're down to one job. To equip the people for works of service so that the church is built up. Which makes the primary work of these spiritual leaders 
the training and equipping of the laity so they can do the work of ministry. Now, how do we know? How do we have the audacity to say that that's the correct understanding? Well, just like we do in the other texts that have confusion, you look at the context. Let's just keep reading in Ephesians 4 and see if we can figure out what he meant, right? Ephesians 4 says, Till we all come, verse 13, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Now look at verses 16, uh, verse 16 very carefully. From whom, that is from Christ, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Clearly he's looking for every member of the body of Christ to do its share and therefore the church will grow. That's what his intent was. We can see it from his own words. If we go back to the book of Acts, we can see that this is how the Apostle Paul ministered. Not only there in Antioch, but let's go to Acts chapter 14. And we'll find out, and I'm going to make a, make a, a statement here, and we're going to build on it from textual evidence, that the Apostle Paul, who wrote, of course, was the most prolific writer of the New Testament there, and a traveler and speaker and church worker, viewed the work of the full-time ministry, though what we might dub the clergy, right, the apostles, the teachers, the full-time workers, as twofold. They had two main responsibilities in all the writings I can find of them. Number one, they were to win souls through personal and public evangelism. They were to be soul winners, gospel preachers, disciple makers, yes? Okay, whether they were one-on-one -on -one conversation or speaking to a whole crowd. That's their first job, is to make believers, make disciples through preaching the word. Number two, their second duty was to train local leaders to manage local church families in their everyday, ongoing, continued growth in Christ. They were to raise up believers through preaching the word, then organize them, train them, equip them so they can handle their work, and then they would go on to further gospel ministry. Okay? So to preach the word and make disciples, then to organize them, set them in order, appoint elders, and you'll see, and then move on. That's what they did. We see this exemplified in Acts chapter 14. Let's go down to verse 21. And see if you can see how many cities are lifted off in just a couple of verses here. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and, and made many disciples, so they preached the gospel and made disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So we already have that city, which is Derby, then Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So notice they're going back to where they'd already made disciples. For what purpose? To encourage them to lift them up and keep going. So they raise up people, add them to their list, and they would keep going through this circuit. Go back and forth. Now, verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
So they're out preaching the word, raising up churches, and city after city after city, then they would go back around and either in person or through writing, that you have to do when he was in prison, thus we have letters to the Corinthians and the, all the different churches. They would encourage the believers, tell them to keep going, and appoint elders and help them organize so they would continue their work. That was their methodology. Let's go to 2 Timothy. Let's see that his counsel, you notice that the Apostle Paul would always take along a, a, a young apprentice, if you will. He was always mentoring someone else, training someone else. Let's go now to the book of 2 Timothy. Timothy was one of these men, and we're going to see a closer look at his experience later in our morning series, but for right now, 2 Timothy chapter 4. How many of you were able to attend the ordination service this last Sabbath? It's a beautiful thing, is it not? It's a powerful thing. And I have never been to an ordination service where this particular passage is not printed in the bulletin, preached from up front, charged to the, I mean, this is the centerpiece. This is Paul's charge to Timothy, which is the template for all of our pastoral ministry. So we should look at it a little more carefully. Chapter 2, I mean, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, starting with verse 1. The Apostle Paul says to his protege, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the what? Word. Notice that's his first primary goal. You preach the word and make disciples from the word. Not from the opinion, not from the culture, but preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now the key is in verse 5. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and now notice this, do the work of a what? An evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Preach the word like an evangelist, as an evangelist, and thus fulfill your ministry. Now, oftentimes when we hear these messages preached in a camp meeting or somewhere we're in a local church setting, we think, mm-hmm, we need a preacher to come and preach to our church. They need to come preach to us. Maybe you're dissatisfied with your pastor. I've never heard of that ever happening, but if it were the case. Or something is off and you say, oh, they need to come. We need a pastor to come in here and preach to us. Let me ask you a very simple question. Who do evangelists preach to? Believers or non-believers? Non-believers. Why do they preach to non-believers? Because <laughs> they're trying to turn them into believers, right? That's their work. You saw that model in the Apostle Paul. Now he tells Timothy, that's the thing you do. We think he's talking about church members. He's talking about non-believers you're supposed to preach to. Turn them into believers and then go win some more souls. Let's look at his counsel to Titus. Titus chapter 1. Still there in the T section of the New Testament. Just turn to the right. We see the same model in his relationship with Titus. Apparently they had been on a missionary journey together, preaching the word of God, making new disciples. And it says here in verse 5, after he greets Titus in verse 4, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete. Now, I don't know why that makes me smile, but I get the picture in my mind that Titus woke up one day and Paul wasn't there. <laughs> and he's like, where'd he go? And finally he gets a letter, oh, that's why you left me. 
No, he's reminding him here. This is not the first time he's exposed to the truth of why he was left behind, right? But he's clarifying here. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. And what does he mean by that? And appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Right? So apparently these two have been working together, doing the work of an evangelist, raising up new believers all over this territory of Crete. And then... Paul moves on and he leaves Titus behind. But it's not to be the pastor of the church in Crete. This is a large territory with multiple cities in it. And what is Titus's job that he's supposed to do now? To organize them, to set in order the things that are lacking, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. He said, remember how I taught you what churches should look like and you saw it in the other places? Now you're ready to do that equipping and organizing yourself. I'm going to go on probably to pick up another apprentice, right? And you stay here and you work this territory for this purpose of organizing and then the assumptions, then you can move on too. But we work together to raise up these believers. Now you need to stay here and put them in order so they're healthy local congregations. Now, when the Seventh-day Adventist church began, they were radically known as a people of the book. Whatever the Bible says, we'll go with it. Whether it's the truth about the second coming, the state of the dead, the sanctuary message, praise God, any of those things, the message they got from the book. But the method of delivering that message they also got from the book. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was officially organized in 1863. There was only one conference that predated the General Conference, and it's the Michigan Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. Well done. Maybe a few of you were there at the time, but probably not. But your ancestors, your forefathers, did a great work. Okay? And it, by 18, in, those, in that era, once the organization got in place and things started clicking, boy, the Seventh-day Adventist church took off. It was fantastic. You know, the late 1800s is a time of tremendous growth in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and it got so intense that even non-religious people, secular uh, media, got a hold of this phenomena, and they started asking some questions. In 1886... When the Wabash, Indiana Plains dealer asked, how did you carry your work forward so rapidly, this was the answer given by Elder G.B. Starr. He said, well, in the first place, we have no settled pastors. Our churches are taught to take care of themselves, while nearly all of our ministers work as evangelists in new fields. Now, notice it said no settled pastors and nearly all. That implies that there are some administrators, but the field pastors weren't settled over a local congregation. They were out expanding the work into new fields, doing the work of an evangelist. That was 1886. Now, I'm going to kind of make this platform a bit of a timeline, okay? 1886 is over here. Today is over there. Do we understand? Good. Okay. 26 years later, in 1912, the General Conference President, A.G. Daniels at the time, was speaking in Los Angeles, California to a ministerial institute, and these were his words. We have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors to any large extent, which implies that now there are some, but very few, to any large extent. In some of the very, and what kind of churches do you think got settled pastors? big ones. Right? In some of our very large churches, 
we have elected pastors, but as a rule, we have held ourselves ready for field service, evangelistic work, and our brethren and sisters have held themselves ready to maintain their church services and carry forward their church work without settled pastors. And now, A.G. Daniels is not a prophet, but I do believe he was speaking with divine insight, if you will, here, as he spoke these next words. He says, and I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination. For when we cease our forward movement work and begin to settle over our churches, to stay by them and do their thinking and their praying and their work that is to be done, then our churches will begin to weaken and to lose their life and spirit and become paralyzed and fossilized and our work will be on a retreat. That was 1912. It was just starting to have settled past. He said, I hope this doesn't become a big thing. 45 years later, 1957. In a lecture given at the Washington Missionary College and SDA Seminary, HMS Richard Sr. lamented the then current situation in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, what he saw in the 50s there said, the time of too many of our preachers, instead of being occupied with carrying the message into new fields, is taken up in settling church difficulties and laboring for men and women who should be towers of strength instead of subjects for labor. Then he goes back in his mind and he says, when I was baptized and later became a young preacher, we looked upon churches that had to have settled pastors over every flock as being decadent. Most of our preachers were out on the firing lines, holding meetings, winning men to Christ, and raising up new churches. Then, this is important to keep in mind, every few months, they would come around and visit the churches that had already been established. This seemed to be, according to our view of it, the plan of the apostolic church. Where did they come up with it? They just read their Bibles and did what they saw. About 1995, C.D. Brooks, I mentioned him in an earlier presentation, had his recollections of his earlier work too. He said, when I was a boy, we saw our pastor once every five weeks. Now, H.M.S. Richard Sr., having gone back even further, only saw him every few months. Now, C.D. Brooks remembers five weeks, every couple of months, right? Today, nearly every Sabbath, there is a preacher, and still our members wonder, What's happening to us? Is the Holy Ghost still with us? He was lamenting the weakening of the church, and he said, but we have more and more pastoral care, more and more weekly preaching. What's happening? Fast forward to 1994. This comes from the Seventh-day Adventist Elder's Handbook. There is such a thing, and it's a great resource, and I would encourage you to go to the ABC and pick one up. In 1994, you found this on page 23 of that particular edition. During the Middle Ages, apparently some people noticed this trend in Seventh-day Adventist church work. During the Middle Ages, the clergy largely took over the work of the church. Now, obviously, the Seventh-day Adventist church wasn't around in the Middle Ages, but they're thinking of Christianity as a whole, that there was a shift from a life-driven mission to a clergy-heavy structure. It says the Seventh-day Adventist church still struggles to overcome that medieval tradition 
and seeks to restore the biblical concept that all believers are ministers. Members in general and elders in particular need a greater vision of their significance and responsibility in the church and its work. I was 1994. They're saying we need a corrective here. We need to get back to the scripture, the Bible-based concept. I went to present this message at one of our Adventist institutions, um, a university, and um, I usually like to bring the actual documents with me, like the little books. I can say it's this book right here. And I'd forgot my elder's handbook. And I said, that's no big deal. There's an ABC here, praise the Lord. And I went down and I've got an elder's handbook and they had changed the color on me. It used to be green, now it's blue. I said, okay, I can get past the color. But I went to page 23 and it didn't have a page, well, it had a page 23. But it didn't have that statement anymore. There had been a rewrite. Now, it's still a good resource and I use it for training of elders, no problem. But notice there was a a subtle shift in the understanding, by the way. See if you can catch it. This is from page 28 of the current edition. The Seventh-day Adventist church is growing rapidly, and many churches are understaffed. In such situations, there may be a large multi-church district where a pastor is shared among several churches and is able to visit each church only once every two or three months. Apparently, this is the understaffed condition. It is the faithful service of local elders that helps keep these churches strong and growing. Do you see the implication is? Local elders are needed until the church can be, you know, properly staffed. Now, I'm going to share with you some statements from the pen of inspiration. Probably more statements from the spirit of prophecy in one sermon than you've heard in a very long time. Not apologizing, I'm just letting you know. But see if you can pick up a trend in her writings, in her counsel about the work of the local church and the responsibility of the pastors and members. Notice this now. Evangelism, page 381. If the proper instruction were given... If the proper methods were followed, every church member would do his work as a member of the body. He would do Christian missionary work. But the churches are dying, and they want a minister to preach to them. She then goes on to say, they should be taught that unless they can stand alone without a minister, they need to be converted anew and baptized anew. They need to be born again. Now, I don't know if she was being hyperbolic to say that this is a grounds for rebaptism, but friends, if you get to the point that you can't do Christian missionary work on your own and you don't have connection with Christ, you can't do your own thinking, your own praying, maybe it is time to reconsider being born again. Ministry of Healing, page 149. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. I want you to blazon this in your mind. Church should be school. The amens will come later, I'm sure. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. Its members should be taught how to give Bible readings, what we would call Bible studies. How to conduct and teach Sabbath school classes. How best to help the poor and to care for the sick. How to work for the unconverted. The members should know how to do this. 
From the Atlantic Union Gleaner of January 8, 1902, we read, There should not be a call to have settled pastors over our churches, but let the life-giving power of the truth impress the individual members to act, leading them to labor interestedly to carry on efficient missionary work in each locality. As the hand of God, the church is to be educated and trained to do effective service. Its members are to be the Lord's devoted Christian workers. Later in that same year, in the Pacific Union Recorder of April 24, 1902, we read, Oh, what a work there is before us. Our ministers are not to hover over those who have received the message. Just as soon as a church is organized, let the minister set the members to work. The newly formed churches will need to be educated. The minister should devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. He should teach the people how to extend the knowledge of the truth. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 7, pages 19 and 20. The greatest help that can be given our people is to teach them to work for God and to depend on Him, not on the ministers. She goes on to say, let the minister devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. Let him teach the people how to give to others the knowledge they have received. One of my favorites. Evangelism, page 382. If the ministers would get out of the way, if the ministers would get out of the way, if they would go forth into new fields, the members would be obliged to bear responsibilities and their capabilities would increase by use. Now, let's break this down a little bit. This implies that there are members who have capacity but have not exercised it for a very long time. So when if, if you went out to give a Bible study or go door to door or something like that, you might say, I'm not good at it, and you might be right. But friends, let me ask you something. If not being good at something, a good reason to not do it? No, it's evidence that you need to do it more. If you were in an accident, your leg was crushed, and you had to spend a long time in reparative surgery and in a cast and all this kind of stuff, once the day finally came, weeks and weeks later, you could take that accoutrement off, would your leg look different than when it did before? Sure, it would be shriveled, it would be atrophied, it would probably be pale and maybe itch and stink, it's gross. <laughs> but when you get up to walk, you just fall right over, right? Now, if a physical therapist came in and saw you in this condition, they would not look at you and say, mm, oh, that is too bad. You know what you need? Bed rest. In fact, I would say that, that's, uh, that walking just isn't your gift. It might be best to go ahead and make this official. Let's schedule the amputation. <laughs> no, any good physical therapist would say, what are you going to do? Exercise. Stretch. Now, they're not going to say go run a marathon. But they're going to start taking baby steps, a little weight training, a little stretching, a little exercise, and your capabilities will increase by use. Friends, the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. If you're not good at soul winning, keep trying. You'll get better. The Lord will give you strength and can build you up spiritually just like it can restore your health physically. We need this concept. Review and Herald, October 22, 1889. If church members are educated to be silent and useless members, 
Instead of benefiting the church, they will be a hindrance to its advancement and growth. If they are educated to lean upon the minister, they will become only inefficient and demoralized members, and the church will be powerless instead of active and efficient. Now, I think that's a very, at the first glance, that sounds pretty negative. It sounds pretty dark. But upon further reflection, I find a lot of hope in that statement. Let's look at the first part again. If the church members are educated to be silent and useless. Have you ever met a new convert to seven-day Adventism? In fact, are any of you here a new convert to seven-day Adventism? Praise the Lord for coming to the morning meetings. Good on you. Welcome. Glad to have you here. New believers don't stop talking. They'll go to work and their friends are going to be, hey, how about the game? They're like, forget about the game. You don't let me tell you about the mark of the beast. They just go on and on. Now, that's beautiful. There's a zeal. There's an excitement. They've come and they got that first love experience. And yes, you need to harness that oftentimes and train it and equip it to be efficient and effective, but I'd much rather have to harness too much zeal than try to draw water from a rock. And notice this statement says, if the members are educated to be silent and useless. They have to be taught how to be silent and useless. It doesn't come naturally to the converted heart to be quiet about what they've learned. You have to go through a training course to become a silent and useless member. Now, I don't know how many churches, I've never seen one, and I'm hoping there's not one in existence who've ever held a seminar session for how to be a silent and useless church member. Come this Sabbath afternoon after potluck, we'll teach you how to be quiet and do nothing. No one intentionally sets out for that goal and objective to be reached, yet apparently the training still exists. Six weeks after the conversion, on fire. Six months, there's still a fire. On a low flame, maybe. Six years if they're still here at all. They have taken the course. They've found their seat. They've learned to become a silent and useless member. You didn't have to intentionally teach it. We've collectively become that expectation. Review and Herald, July 16, 1908. There are many who have never heard from the word the reasons for our faith, and yet some of our ministers feel a burden to hover over little companies of believers in an effort to hold them together. The best way to hold them together is to induce them to maintain a living connection with God and to exert their influence in seeking to draw others to him. She gives a little parable in Gospel Workers, page 197 and 198. In some respects, the pastor occupies a position similar to that of the foreman of a gang of laboring men or the captain of a ship's crew. They are expected to see that the men over whom they are set do their work assigned to them correctly and promptly, and only in case of emergency are they to execute in detail. She goes on to give the parable. The owner of a large mill once found his superintendent in a wheel pit while uh, making some simple repairs, while a half dozen workmen in the line were standing by, idly looking on. So we have the owner, we have the superintendent, and then we have workmen, right? Three levels of responsibility. The proprietor, that is the owner, after learning the facts so as to be sure that no injustice was done, called the foreman to his office and handed him his discharge with full pay. 
You can imagine the scene. He's walking by, sees that foreman down there just working hard and sweating away while the others are watching. And he says, hey, when you're finished up down there, let me, let me see you in my office. And finally he says, all right, give me a minute. I'll be there. He comes back. He's just sweating and working. His back is tired. He's like, I got to go real quick. They need my help down there. What can I do for you, sir? He says, oh, real quick, before you go back, you're fired. What? You're firing me? I'm the only one down there working and you're firing me? And he's like, yes, you're the only one down there working. <laughs> and I'm firing you. Listen as it continues. In surprise, the foreman asked for an explanation. It was given in these words. I employed you to keep six men at work. I found the six idle and you doing the work of but one. A couple of very important ideas right here. Your work, obviously this is analogous to the pastor, right? Your work could have been done just as well by any one of the six. Friends, if you have a friend or a new, a new interest, Bible study interest, don't say, let me go get my pastor. What you should say is, let me go get my Bible and let's study together. There is this idea, oh, they're trained, they've gone to school, they're prepared, they're paid, they're the ones who, no, 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 no. Every member should be a missionary ready to share the reasons for their faith. Amen. Just as well by any one of the six. She continues, I cannot afford to pay the wages of seven for you to teach the six how to be idle. Not only are they being idle, they're being taught the philosophy of idleness by the hard work of the, of the superintendent. He said, your work is actually not only keeping us neutral, it's actually taking us backwards. You're training my workers to be idle watchers. I don't want to get to the punchline too quick, friends, but I believe the Seventh-day Adventist church is full of too many watchers and not enough workers. We have a model now where we have one man working and a hundred members watching, where it should be the other way around. We have one man working to train a hundred other workers in the cause. We should all be working, amen? She goes on to explain, this incident may be applicable in some cases and in others not, but many pastors fail in not knowing how or in not trying to get the full membership of the church actively engaged in the various departments of church work. If pastors would give more attention to getting and keeping their flock actively engaged at work, they would accomplish more good, have more time for study and religious visiting, and also avoid many causes of friction. I don't know if you've ever gone through a time when you didn't have a pastor in your local church, but nine times out of ten, those church members look back with fondness on that era. There was a change, new responsibilities. We had to look at things a different way. We had to do a little something different. And they look down, they're not sad to see a new pastor come. But it wasn't wholly bad when he was gone. Gospel Workers, page 352. The work of God and the earth can never be finished. I'm so glad that there's no punctuation problem there and it doesn't stop with a period. Wouldn't that be the most discouraging statement you've ever heard? <laughs> The work of God on the earth can never be finished. Let's bow our heads for prayer. <laughs> but that's not what she's saying. She says it, is, it can be finished, but only in this circumstance. Notice again. The work of God and the earth can never be finished until 
the men and women comprising our church membership rally to the work and unite their efforts with those of ministers and church officers. Friends, I don't know about you, but I'd like to see the work finished in my lifetime. But in any job that's ever been done, finishing the work always requires starting the work. From the book of Acts, from Adventist church history, from the lessons of Paul, from the writings of the spirit of prophecy, I think we need to rethink the work of the local church and the role of the membership and the leadership. Counterintuitive as it may be, you can do this experiment on your own sometime. Go to the Adventist Church website, go to the Statistics and Archives page, just, you know, Google Adventist Statistics, it'll take you right there. The Adventist Church is fantastic about this. All of their data is usually up to date within the last one or two years. And you know that, of course, we've got over 19 million members in the Seventh-day Adventist Church right now. Praise the Lord. But you can, and it breaks it down by territory and geographic zones and this kind of thing. And if you, if you take any two zones, okay, regardless of geography or socioeconomic status or race or ethnicity or any of those other things, but you compare any two things, you look for one difference. Territories with fewer pastors, that is more churches per pastor, almost always, I put the almost in there even though I didn't find an example, just to hedge my bet just a little bit, but in my research, always grow faster than those with more pastors. Now don't go home with pitchforks and start sending away your pastor with threats, you know, a reasonable argument could be made, and I'm not, I want to be crystal clear, I am not making this argument, but it could be made, that pastors kill church growth. But it's not because pastors are doing a bad job. We have many hardworking, dedicated, faithful ministers out there. They're down in the trenches, they're down in the wheel pit, working hard. It's not that they're doing a bad job. It's oftentimes merely that they're doing the wrong job very well. In a lot of cases, friends, they're doing your job. And too many of our members aren't doing any job for the Lord. Our big problem isn't poor pastors, but poor expectations of pastors held by both lay people and pastors and administrators, the whole thing. We have the wrong picture in our mind of what is the work of the pastor and what is the responsibility of the lay member. It isn't that pastors aren't doing a bad job. They're just doing the wrong job. Here's the lesson I take away from the book of Acts when I see the Apostle Paul leading up these churches and I read the other biblical counsel and I see the, the counsel of the, uh, of the spirit of prophecy in the, in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist church. I believe that to be truly a people of the book, we should work the way the book directs. Inspiration has warned and history has demonstrated that settled pastors lead to settled elders and settled deacons and settled members who all just settle in right here in this world that is not our home. Jesus said the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few, the laborers are few. Friends, I believe that in these last days of earth's history, in the Seventh-day Adventist church, the term member should be synonymous with missionary. 
Every church member needs to be a soul winner for Jesus Christ. You need to go everywhere preaching the word, whether the apostles and pastors are there with you or not. We need a Bible study reformation right here in the Michigan Conference. And I praise the Lord for the administrators and workers here in the Michigan Conference who recognize this, have have put the Training Center Church Committee together, are laying these plans of Grow Michigan and all of these things, and you're going to be hearing more about it later, and I'm so tempted to tell you about it, but I have to let Jim Howard do his work. But I'm telling you, friends, we need a Bible study reformation amongst the membership of the Seventh-day Adventist Church right here in Michigan. Members got to mean missionary. We have far too many watchers and not nearly enough workers. Let me ask you a question. Has our presentation today been clear? Good, I'm glad it was convincing. Let me ask you another question. Was it convicting? Do you feel the Holy Spirit saying, Lord, not only is it right, but it's, it's, it's cutting to the heart for me. That there's somebody in my life, maybe I haven't met him yet. And we need to learn how to look for good interests, how to know which is ripe and which one is not ready yet, how to know how to approach people, how to move the conversation from the secular to the spiritual. You need training, you need equipping, but you know in your heart that you should be something more for the Lord than you're currently doing. Now, I'm not talking about holding church office. I'm talking about winning souls. Friends, if that is your desire, if you've been convinced of the message, if you're convicted by it, let me ask you this question. Are you going to yield and be converted to this truth? Are you going to leave here and do something different? I'm telling you, I get a little tired of appeals that end right here at the altar. The real appeal is not when you come streaming down front. It's when you go out the back door and you put it into practice in your life. We need a generation of missionary members in the Seventh Adventist Church who will take the Bible in their hand and look for those divine appointments and say, Lord, here am I. Send me. I hope that's your desire. Friends, I want to be a better pastor, and I want you to be better members so that we can all be workers together, so we can hasten that soon coming of Jesus. Take soon and make it sooner. This is my prayer, and I hope it's yours as well. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have entrusted to us, humble, feeble, frail, anemic though we may be, you have given us the ministry of reconciliation. You have put a burden on our hearts. You have said, go make disciples of all nations. And in the Seventh Adventist Church, we've been entrusted with those beautiful three angels' messages. Lord, we have the truth. We have the message. What we need are messengers. Lord, revive us. Reform us. Train us, equip us, and put us to work in your vineyard. Help us to not be satisfied merely being watchers, but raise up a generation of workers. Let churches be formed according to the apostolic model. And let the work go forward in ways that will catch the attention of onlooking spectators and say, what is going on there? Lord, revive us, reform us. Redeem us in the end. And let us see Jesus come soon and very soon. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.